The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turning today, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a wonderful book. I preached all the way through it quite a few years ago and really appreciated it in a new way. The main theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ, how he is superior to every other god. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Old Testament prophets and Old Testament priests. And it's actually on that sub-theme that the writer, whose name we do not know with certainty of this wonderful book, was thinking as we come to the second half of Hebrews 7, I pick up in mid-discussion at verse 23. We're thinking about the theme of prayer. I'm not just meandering aimlessly through that subject. I'm trying to give you thoughts about biblical prayer in an orderly fashion. And uh, here today we see the role of Jesus himself in our praying. Listen, Hebrews 7, beginning at 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Christ holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." This is the Word of God. A young girl knew that her father was returning home from a several weeks long business trip. She missed her dad and wanted to show him in some way as he returned home that she loved him and cared for him and wanted him back. So she went out to the fields to find some wildflowers to give to dad. She was young enough that she came back with a tattered collection of grass and weeds and dandelions and here and there an actual flower, maybe half broken. And mom saw what she brought in and intercepted her daughter in the kitchen and said, Honey, that's great what you've done. Let's get your flowers ready to give to daddy. And so mom got out a vase and helped the girl select the best of the flowers and Mom sort of discreetly put some of the non-flowers off to the side. 
and helped the little girl arrange the best of what she had picked with some greens in the vase, and it was ready to give to Dad when he came home. And he, of course, knew who had picked those flowers in an act of love, and he knew also who had done the arranging discreetly to make the artistry of the flowers even greater and more presentable. Well, I think the Word of God teaches us that Jesus Christ does much the same thing with our prayers. As we offer God what are often pitifully ignorant cries and half-baked requests, Jesus the Son, the perfect intercessor, sorts out our prayers and acts as a high priest with his Father, presenting to him the imperfect things that we would bring in a more perfect form. We could discuss prayer in terms of the technique of it. There are a lot of people that think prayer is perhaps about eloquence, how well we speak, how big are the words we use, how good are the theological concepts that we bring. You know, one person stands to pray and people say, oh my, he prays impressively. Someone else prays and we think, well, that's just a stammering, almost childish, immature prayer. But we believe that the prayers of God's people are not rated by their eloquence. They're received by God the Spirit and God the Son as they're offered to God the Father. And there's a role that the Spirit has, by the way, which I'll speak about in a future week, I hope. But today I'm looking at what the Bible says, and it says it so well in this one verse of Hebrews 7.25 about the role of Jesus the Son as the conveyor and interpreter of Christian prayer. It's essential for us to know that Scripture insists that as we pray, we have an intercessor who prays for us and with us, conveying what we say to his Father. We need somebody to stand between us. We have a craving, an essential human craving, that there might be a priest who would be able to speak better than we speak and would somehow help us to know that we connect with a holy God. Sadly, this leads people in their religion, in their vanity, to construct all kinds of intercessors who are not really intercessors at all. You can walk into the great cathedrals of any city and find banks of votive candles lit where people have come and given their dollar or whatever it is and lit their candle and had a prayer, St. Aloysius or St. Anthony or somebody, thinking that this great uh, Christian from the past who is renowned for some deeds of holiness will be a better spokesman than they are with the Lord or the sadness of believing that the Virgin Mary is somehow one who has the ear of God in a different way than anyone else. And so cathedrals are filled with banks of flickering lights all the time by people looking for an intercessor, looking for a go-between. And sadly, many of those, or all of those, human intermediaries who are chosen are not qualified. Scripture tells us there's one who's qualified. First Timothy 2.5 says there's one God 
and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by way of me. Why would people seek another intercessor? Why is that teaching not plain enough to people? But the better question today is, do you know that Christ is your intercessor? And do you comprehend the greatness of what it means to have a living advocate with God the Father in the person of Christ? I think Hebrews 7.25 brings this truth forward better than anything else in the Scripture. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to God by Him, Jesus Christ, for He ever lives to make intercession for them. I'm going to offer you several points to apply this text today and understand it. First, that it speaks of a great historic act. This text alludes to the fact that Christ is the great high priest who once and for all opened heaven's gate to God. The words once for all are thematic words in the book of Hebrews. It speaks any number of times. I didn't count the times that Hebrews says once for all. But every time it says that, it's talking about the great work of Jesus Christ, His atonement on the cross that brought human beings who by faith come to God through Him into the presence of God. There's an early cry in the Old Testament of Job. We studied something about Job a number of months ago. I believe it was earlier this year. And we heard Job at times when he felt he was cut off. He didn't feel God was hearing him. And one time he wailed out in Job 9.33, Oh, if only there was someone to arbitrate between us who could lay his hand upon his, us both. He meant God. Someone who could put one hand on God and one hand on Job and somehow draw them in together. And Job said, I, I don't feel like I know where that person is. I haven't met that person. And his cry was one that was really only satisfied and met in Christ as he came forth in the New Testament. Those who have never bowed their lives before Jesus and understood him to be a Lord and an intercessor have sometimes silly ideas about God and, and usually false ideas. They think the idea of prayer is, well, kind of having a chat with God as if he was a buddy. I think I'll talk to the man upstairs, people say. I'll just tune in and see what God has to say. But the unbeliever rarely has the idea that God is the one who is, as we heard in a Sunday school class this morning, holy, holy, holy. God who dwells in inapproachable light. God who is our mighty creator. They don't have this sense of approaching someone who is high above themselves. How do you approach someone like that? You don't saunter up to the White House and say, Hey, I think I'd like to see the Prez today. Uh, how are the tickets to the Oval Office? Uh, you'll be conducted off the ground. You won't get on the grounds in the first place unless you manage to go over a high fence, and then you're in big trouble. 
1 John 2, 1 says, there is an advocate for the believer with the Father. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one who is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, you may know that attorneys are often called advocates, helpers who come alongside a person and they bring their knowledge of the law, they bring their knowledge of what statutes uh, apply to their particular kind of a case, and they build a case and build a defense to help you, hopefully, as you are being arraigned by some court or in some suit brought against you, to build up the facts of your innocence and find you not guilty of whatever the problem is. Your advocate does that. But you see, there's a difference with Christ as an advocate. He doesn't simply come and argue the law and say, God, I want you to help Sam over here because you know he's innocent and he hasn't done anything wrong, and so let him find justice because he deserves to be free of this problem. Well, that would be what Christ would do if you were innocent. But being your advocate, Christ comes to you knowing fundamentally that you are not innocent. You were born in sin. You were dead in trespasses and sin. We were in the new members class today talking first about the bad news against every one of us in this world, that we are sinners who need salvation. And then, of course, the great good news that God offers that salvation. But many people don't even understand this as they pray, that they need someone to come and not say, oh, look how good this person is, oh God. Look how much they've done for humanity, how fine a parent they've been, or or what a fine citizen or business leader they've been. They don't need someone to argue that. They need someone who comes and recognizes that they need not justice, they need mercy. Because they are without that which would impress God. And they need someone who would plead for them to obtain mercy. They're not innocent. They're guilty. They need an advocate who can do what no human attorney would ever think of doing, offering their own life to bring the innocence and righteousness of Jesus Christ to apply to a guilty person. That's the way in which Christ is an advocate. He comes not to plead your innocence, but to plead mercy for you and to effectually win that mercy by giving his righteous life on your behalf. Aaron was the brother of Moses, as you know, and he was the original high priest. God established Aaron as a priest, so there'd be a pattern. So we would understand by what Aaron did what we needed and what only Christ could ultimately provide. In Exodus 28, you have a dramatic picture of Aaron going into the Holy of Holies in the original tabernacle, and then later his successors did it at the the great temple that Solomon built. And it's, it's really amazing to read the account of all the clothing that the priest wore, all of it symbolic. He cleansed himself. He bathed himself. He had to be very clean, and he put on clean linen garments and these very elaborate clothes that included a breastplate set with 12 precious stones. Each one represented one of the 12 tribes. And then he had what was called an ephod, a kind of vest 
that had the names of the tribes on it. So Aaron was a a walking representation, a walking intercessor as he went into the holy presence of God in the temple. He carried the people on himself, on his clothing, to seek the forgiveness of the Lord for guilty people. Well, we know God was preparing us for Christ because Aaron was prophetically symbolizing in his temporary way, he was going to die. He wasn't a, an everlasting person. His sons and their sons and their sons would have to carry out the priesthood in the tribe of Levi. But he symbolized Christ. And what Hebrews does is says, look, you, you look back at that example and know that that was an inferior and temporary way of my showing you what you need. You need a priest who has an everlasting life, not a temporary life. You need a priest who doesn't have to come first offering for his own sins, but one who has no sins, who can offer himself, and his righteousness will be offered on behalf. You need a priest who doesn't just wear a special garment with your name on it, but a priest who comes, as we know, Jesus came, not with garments with names on, but with hands. And our song that we sang this morning said, my name is written on his hands. That means his wounds. His wounds came to intercede for the people of God as he offered himself as our substitute. What a wonderful thing he did. Christ is the high priest who once and for all opened heaven's gate to see God and to know God and be heard in His presence when we pray. Well, that's the once-for-all way in which He interceded. But then there's the constant way, secondly. We also say that Christ's intercession is active in prayer today. Hebrews 7.25 is written in the present tense when it says, He is now able to save to the uttermost all who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ's atonement at the cross was an unlimited atonement. The word uttermost used in that verse is a rather rare Greek word. It means extending to the farthest possible reach you can imagine, to the farthest corner of the earth. People used to use the word Timbuktu when I was a kid. They'd say, you know, something goes from here to Timbuktu, and the point was nobody knew where Timbuktu is, but it was as far away as anybody could imagine. He saves to the uttermost, to those who are behaving in the most outlandish, rebellious, degraded behavior. He's ready to save them. No matter what kind of a person you are, no matter what you've done, what you've thought, whether you've committed murder or infidelity or embezzlement or jealousy or lying. He's ready to save to the uttermost extent of what human beings can do. But there's more, not just in terms of uttermost meaning the things you've done, but in duration. He's ready to save you again and again and again. His salvation doesn't have an expiration date. You know, used by November 1st or it expires. That's not the way it is. Christ's intercession began, as we said a moment ago, in his once-for-all work on his cross, but it continues, and it's being applied day in, day out for every believer in Christ. 
A Bible scholar, some of you know by the name of A.W. Pink, wrote this about Hebrews 7.25. Here's Pink's words. Too many Christians, he said, dwell exclusively upon the cross as if it were a past event without seeing its ongoing work for them. Actually, Christ died not only to take away the historic penalty of a believer's sin, but today he applies to us all the benefits of the resurrection life of Jesus. Jesus died, he is risen, he ascended, he rules, and yes, right now today, Pink said, he prays for me. He prays for me. We see that in John 17, even before he died. A wonderful prayer of Jesus that only John 17 reports. As he was facing the cross, he, he started out in that prayer, if you've ever studied John 17, and he said, Father, I'm ready to bring you glory. Now's the hour. Here's the time. I'm going to bring glory to you. But he went on and prayed for his disciples in that prayer, and not just his disciples, but us. For he prayed for those who were not yet known. And he says, I'm not praying for the world in John 17, 9, but for those you have given me and will give me. And here was his petition as he prayed for us. He said, keep them or protect them by the power of your name. He went on to say, protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by the truth. I might be speaking for myself alone out of all this room of full of people and people listening to me here, but I need a keeper. I certainly am not able to protect myself and guard myself through the challenges and the difficulties and the traps of my moral enemy, Satan. I need a keeper. I need someone who has my name on his hands who's ready to prepare the way for me and protect me. I think of so often of what Jesus said to Peter. It's found in Luke only. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. This is the night of the arrest and everything, and you remember what Peter did denying Jesus three times. But before he did that, Jesus said to him in Luke 22, Peter, Satan desires to have you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not be lost, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you realize what a wonderful passage that is? Jesus knew exactly what was coming for Peter. He had no idea. He was saying, don't worry, Lord, I'll be there. I'll, be, I'll stay at your side. I'll do anything. I'll beat anybody up. I'll kill anybody who tries to hurt you. Peter bluffed and bravadoed his way. Jesus said, Satan desires to have you, but don't worry. I have prayed for you. He didn't say you won't fall. He said, I have prayed for you. And when you turn back, meaning I know you're going to, strengthen your brothers. Christ prayed for his great friend, Peter. Do you realize you must count upon that active, constant intercession of Christ as a Christian to go before you, one who knows everything you're going to face. You think you're sailing along, things are going great. Uh, Boy, life's in a a nice smooth place. You don't see the chasm you might drop into tomorrow, the great grief that's going to come to your life, the big loss, the tremendous 
financial change, the great challenge of conflict with somebody in your family. Can you imagine that Jesus is saying to you, I have prayed for you. Your keeper has prayed for you. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Christ conveys the blessing of God as he is involved in prayers we haven't even made yet, in a manner of speaking. Romans 8.34 has a climax on this teaching when it says, Who is he that condemns us? Christ Jesus, who died and more than that was raised to life, is now at the right hand of God, interceding for us. So finally, I ask this morning, for whom does Christ intercede? Hebrews 7.25 says it. He does so for those who come to God by way of him. I'm not going to tell you your name is written on the ephod worn by Jesus like the ephod that Aaron wore. I don't imagine Jesus in heaven wearing an ephod. I imagine Jesus in heaven with his hands and the wounds still there. And I imagine my name graven on his hands because it was my sins that put those wounds into his hands. And I imagine that I can come to him upon his guarantee of what he said to Peter and what he said to others, that I can come to him continually asking him to communicate to the Father the mercy that I need to live each day. And he was the one who said, He that comes to me, I will not cast out. Do you understand that our intercessor is one with unbreakable contact with God the Father? He is God. He's the Son of God. He proved that to us in every way. And so his hand is indeed upon the Father. And his hand is indeed upon us. And his grip on the Father and his grip upon us is an unbreakable grip. And so this intercessor is all-powerful and all-dependable. He intercepts my weak prayer requests. He cleans them up. He interprets them. He remolds my mind so that I start thinking more like him. And the prince of heaven becomes the go-between with the king of heaven. How can it be better than that? Who better can present my weak prayers at the throne of grace. My prayers that are like the scraggly fistful of flowers that little girl brought all mixed in with dandelions and grasses and weeds that weren't very presentable, but they were the best she had, the best she knew how to bring. And the mom helped her make a fine bouquet just as Christ interprets our prayers and brings them to his Father. The song we sang before this message said, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I hope you as a believer who has bowed to Jesus as Lord know that is true. And know with certainty today that Christ who died for you also prays for you. We assert our dependence on him as intercessor every single time that we end a prayer and say a not insignificant phrase, in Jesus' name, amen. Father, 
We need that intercessor so much. Job cried out because he seemed like he couldn't penetrate heaven. The heavens were like brass to him, and he said, oh, that someone could stand in the middle. Thank you that you brought us the one who stands in between. Thank you for his atoning death and his righteousness transferred to us so that heaven's gates swing open. Thank you for his bloody wounds inflicted by our sin so that we know even now he's praying for things that we don't know are going to happen and cannot anticipate. But just as he was there for Peter, we praise you that he's there for us. Thank you for our wonderful intercessor, even Jesus Christ. Amen.